Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Normally I'm doing announcements, but now I'm preaching. Um, it's a pleasure to be up here this morning and just be able to preach to our church family. Uh, we are working our way through the book of Psalms. We are in our Summer in the Psalms series. So if you guys want to open up to Psalm 45, that is where we will be this morning. And as you're turning there, if you need a Bible, if you don't have one, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. And uh, if you need a Bible, you can take that one home. It's yours. Um, but yeah, go ahead and turn to Psalm 45. And we will get into it. Every time we come back to our Summer in the Psalms series, it always reminds me of the, the variety of emotions and the circumstances that we experience in this life as we follow God in faith. As we work our way through the 150 psalms that make up this book, this summer in the psalm series is going to take a while, we're introduced to different people and their, their high highs and their low lows and everywhere in between. And in these psalms of praising God or lamenting over the felt absence of God, we can all easily relate as the thoughts, the feelings, the rejoicing, and the suffering, they're not unique to just the psalmists, but they're common to us all. And as we witness the high highs and the low lows in the psalms, we easily and naturally put ourselves in the shoes of the psalmists. And what is so beneficial in putting ourselves in their shoes is that the Psalms help us to handle and to process our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own circumstances in a way that draws us near to God. The Psalms as a whole, they direct us toward God, not away from him. When things are great or when things are terrible, in all the Psalms, God is in view. Whether the psalmist is wrestling with trying to reconcile their painful circumstances in light of what they know to be true of God and his promises, like what we saw in Psalm 44 last week, starts off, hi, hi, God, you're amazing and awesome. And then he's like, but you've rejected us. God, where are you? Or they remember to praise him for his faithfulness when everything is going well. There's Psalms all throughout that are just high highs, praising God left and right. In all the Psalms, God is in view. And to be fair, some psalms are easier to identify with than others. And if you've read through all 150 of them, you may have read through some of them and, like me, kind of just forget what it says and move on to the next one. And I think our psalm for today can tend to be a bit like that. Psalm 45 is a wonderful psalm, and I'm very excited to dig into it this morning with you all. But if you're reading Psalms 44, 45, and 46 back-to-back, You'd probably remember Psalm 44 as this cry to God to help us. Psalm 45, probably forget what it's even about. Maybe like a king or queen or something. And then Psalm 46, you get to the well-known verse, be still and know that I am God. You'd probably forget what Psalm 45 has to say. So for our psalm today, there are a couple of key things to know about the psalms that will help us grasp the importance of this text beyond it just being a wedding song for a king. The first thing is that there is an order or a structure to the book of Psalms. 
Maybe that goes without saying for some of you, but I know I have viewed the Psalms as just this massive lump and clump of songs and poems all kind of shoved together into one book, not really thinking there was any like important organization or structure to them. But this is not the case. The main indicator that there truly is a structure to the book of Psalms is that it's divided into five books. These five books within the Psalms they're not evenly divided up with a similar number of psalms in each book. But the five books, they more depict a timeline, highlighting key points in the life of David and Israel, all the way through exile and restoration from it. And not only is there structure in these large sections of the psalms, but there's also intentionality for where individual psalms are placed. And this appears in unique ways in the psalms, because the composer of the whole book will, for example, take Psalms of David and place them all the way in the back in book five, even though David's been dead for a long, long time. But what he wrote fits perfectly in the structure of book five with the praise of God in his restoring of Israel from exile. So there is intentionality for where Psalms are placed. It's not just random luck or coincidence that they happen to be where they're at. And now for our psalm today, Psalm 45, it's located in the beginning of book two, which began with Psalm 42. And I'm not sure if you've noticed over the last few weeks, but Psalms 42 through 44 have kind of had a similar tone through each of them. Psalm 42 has a challenging question, where is your God? Along with the psalmist himself saying, why have you forgotten me? God, why have you forgotten me? Psalm 43 is pretty much a continuation of Psalm 42, and in it the psalmist says, why have you rejected me? Psalm 44 starts off on this high note, remembering who God is and his past faithfulness, but then reality sets in and the psalmist says, you've rejected us. God, you have rejected us. And he ends the psalm declaring to God, rise up, help us, Lord asking God to act because of his faithful love. This felt absence of God in Psalms 42 through 44 and waiting for him to answer kind of leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger and makes us wonder what Psalm 45 is going to say. Will the flow of these Psalms continue on in crying out to God in their misery? Or will there be a change? Will God respond and answer? The second key thing about Psalms is knowing that there is a focus on the king of Israel. While we do easily relate and put ourselves into the circumstances of many Psalms, more often than not, there is a focus or a connection to Israel's king. Whether that be David, who wrote roughly half the Psalms, and there's others even more that are just about him, or the later Davidic kings, or God's anointed one who would come from the line of David, talking about Jesus, the Psalms have a consistent focus on a king. And this theme begins right away in Psalm 2 with God's anointed one, and it's consistently woven through the rest of the Psalms after that. So as we continue working our way through Psalms, and as we look at Psalm 45 this morning, it is important to pay attention to where Psalms have been placed and what other Psalms surround it, as well as how it may focus on Israel's king. So let's read Psalm 45. Then I'll pray, and then we'll get into what the text says. 
Psalm 45. For the choir director, according to the lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart is moved by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most handsome of men. Grace flows from your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Mighty warrior, strap your sword at your side. In your majesty and splendor, in your splendor, ride triumphantly in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. May your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Your sharpened arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia perfume all your garments. From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. King's daughters are among your honored women. The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your lord. The daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people, will seek your favor with gifts. In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing, they enter the king's palace. Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Psalm 45, Lord, I pray that your word is just coming to life within us, that it is speaking to us, that it is... Um, working in ways that you desire to make us more and more like you. I pray, Lord, we can see how this psalm points to you and the hope and the joy and the celebration that we have in you and because of you. So, Father, as we work our way through this, I pray you are just at work amongst each of us, helping us to love, follow, and honor you in all that we do. I pray in your name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm not sure if you caught it, but today we're looking at a love song. And in, this, in the superscript of Psalm 45, it's described as being a song to a certain tune, the tune of the lilies, and to be sung by the sons of Korah. And it finishes by saying it is a song of love. Now, as we remember the previous Psalms, Psalms 42 through 44, we recall that they are all longing for hope. God is apparently absent, and the psalmists are crying out for him to rise up and to help them. And we come to Psalm 45, hoping for a response. But it's not a classic psalm of God, like, wiping away Israel's enemies or rescuing them out of terrible situations. It's a love song. And not just any love song. This is a song composed for the king and his soon-to-be queen. Granted, as we read through it, it's not like a modern love song, right? Um, but this is an ancient love song that was probably sung with all the kings. So perhaps you're asking yourself the natural follow-up question at this point. 
why is Psalm 45, this love song, placed here? I stated earlier that the Psalms are not a random assortment of poems and songs. So is this really seen as an answer or a response to the cries of Psalms 42 through 44? Psalm 45 was placed here for a reason. So let's look at the first section of this psalm, which focuses on a king, and see what it has to say. If we look at verse 1, apparently there is something good here. It says, My heart is moved by a noble theme as I recite my verses to the king. The psalmist says his heart is, is moved, or it's a stir. It's starting to kind of bubble over with a, a good word or a good theme. And what he is about to write is from this pen of a skillful scribe, a phrase that's used to describe Ezra the priest who is a scribe skilled in the law. So we know that what's coming next is a carefully composed, well-written song for the king and the queen. And after his brief aside, the psalmist gets right to work describing this king. And not just a random king, but a Davidic king. And here we easily see the common theme that psalms have a focus on Davidic kings, beginning with David and following his descendants. This king is described as the most handsome of men, or more literally, the most handsome of the descendants of Adam. He's the most handsome of all men, ever. And this description of being handsome rings a bell with the description of David in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, which says, So Jesse, David's dad, sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. And this description of a handsome king goes beyond his physical looks to the beauty of the hope that he brings to God's people. This is seen immediately when the psalmist continues on in verse 2, describing him as one in which grace flows from his lips. With this view of the king in mind, the psalmist cheerfully commands him to go to war and conquer the enemies. Verses 3 through 5 say, Mighty warrior, strap your sword at your side. In your majesty and splendor, in your splendor, ride triumphantly in the cause of truth, humility, and justice. May your right hand show your awe-inspiring acts. Your sharpened arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. In these joyous commands, we see the beauty of the king revealed even more in that he is a mighty hero. He rides and fights for truth and justice and does so in humility. And in his fighting, he defeats his enemies. The peoples fall under him. This is not your run-of-the-mill king that we see in the Old Testament that's just running after false gods and worshiping them. This is the one that God has blessed forever, as the psalmist says at the end of verse 2. This is Israel's ideal king, and it is God's ideal king. And it is an answer to the lament and cries of Psalms 42 through 44. As the end of Psalm 44 calls for God to rise up and help, Psalm 45 tells of a king who conquers all his enemies. The psalmist does not end here, though, in his praise of the king. He continues on as the skillful writer he claims to be, knowing what scripture has to say about God's ideal king. In verses 6 through 7, the psalmist states, Your throne, God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy more than your companions. This king reflects God himself. 
And now, verse 6 seems a bit strange in that this king is being referred to as God when it says, your throne God is forever and ever. And some have tried to kind of wiggle around this by saying it doesn't mean what it plainly says. But the psalmist has not changed who he is speaking of. He is still speaking to the king. Otherwise, verse 7 wouldn't make sense when the psalmist says his actual God has anointed the king. So what is the psalmist trying to say in verse 6 then? Well, it turns out that it was actually not uncommon for a king or a leader of their time to be referred to in this way, especially considering the biblical idea of a vice-regent or a representative of God. We see this with Moses in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. God says to Moses, God says this, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And the like there is actually added in translation. Literally, it's, see, I have made you God to Pharaoh. And the word used there is Elohim to describe Moses. So the king in Psalm 45, 6 is being portrayed as God's representative. He is reflecting God to his people in his rule and reign as king, just as Moses was to Pharaoh. And ultimately, this potential confusion in verse 6 is clarified one verse later, when it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. The psalmist knows who the true God is. Now what we see in the phrases of verses 6 and 7 are vital Old Testament promises being connected to this king. The king's throne being forever and ever in verse 6 ties directly to 2 Samuel 7 when God is establishing his everlasting covenant with David. And God says in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Sounds familiar, right? And then in verse 6, it speaks of the king's scepter, this king's scepter of his kingdom and the king's scepter of justice. This ties way back to Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and he says to his son Judah in verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. And this promise relating to the scepter is picked up in Psalm 2 as well when it says in verses 7 to 9, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. The scepter spoken of in Genesis 49 and in Psalm 2 is being connected to this king in Psalm 45. The psalmist is stating that this king is no ordinary king, but one who is directly connected to the crucial and longed-for promises of God, one whose throne will be forever. And more connections could be made here, like Psalm 110. But all that to say is that the psalmist was a skillful scribe, and he knew his Old Testament. And beyond that, he has helped us connect the dots of who this ideal king is, Psalm 45. Now, we don't know who this psalm was originally written about. Yet we can see it was more than likely some historical figure, as the psalmist says in verses 8 through 9. Myrrh, aloes, and cassia perfume all your garments. From ivory palaces, harps bring you joy. King's daughters are among your honored women. 
The queen, adorned with gold from Ophir, stands at your right hand. There was some king and queen in mind as the psalmist composed this love song originally. But we also pretty quickly realize that there isn't really a king of Israel that 100% meets all these characteristics in verses 2 through 7. It was idealized, if anything. And one scholar described it in this way. He said, Often the Psalms present the king in his ideal, an ideal of which all David's other sons fell far short. Yet this ideal anticipates a king still to come. David and his kingdom foreshadow Christ and his kingdom. And here is where the psalmist's connections to the Old Testament promises of God and his anointed one, whose throne would last forever and whose scepter would bring about justice, is fulfilled. It's in Jesus. And a New Testament author quoted this psalm as he saw it being truly fulfilled and finally fulfilled in Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Hebrews chapter 1. Right after Titus and Philemon, right before James. We're going to read Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9. In the beginning of this letter, the author of Hebrews is expounding upon Jesus as the Son and how great and marvelous he is. And he begins in chapter 1 to, dis, to argue and make the point that the Son, Jesus, is superior to angels. He's going to be greater than anything else that this world has to offer. And so, coming into verses 8 and 9, he's going to contrast the angels with the Son, Jesus, and he's going to quote... Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. He says, But to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. So the author of Hebrews saw verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 45 being ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And man, does it fit like that final piece in the puzzle? In Jesus, we see this king. First of all, being God himself, clearing up that awkwardness of verse 6. And second, his throne, his kingdom lasts forever. Jesus is also the one who rules with justice. He is the one who loves righteousness and hates lawlessness. He is God's anointed one, described in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 45. Jesus is the one who fulfills all these amazing statements of Psalm 45. And the author of Hebrews recognized this as he composed his letter arguing for the superiority of Jesus above all things. So in this love song so far, we see an idealized king who conquers his enemies and answers the cry of the previous psalms and is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. This is the one in whom we put our hope and trust, for he is our great king, the one who has grace flowing from his lips, the one who is our mighty hero, the one who conquered our greatest enemies in sin, Satan, and death, the one who humbly fights for justice in the cause of truth. Jesus is our beloved now let's flip back to Psalm 45. And we're going to continue on there by looking 
at the rest of what the psalmist has to say. In verse 9, uh, it wraps up the focus on the king by stating that the queen is finely dressed, standing at his right hand. And now there will be a turn of attention onto the queen and an almost flashback of her as she prepares for her wedding day. So let's read Psalm 45, verses 10 through 17. Listen, daughter, pay attention and consider. Forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Bow down to him, for he is your Lord. The daughter of Tyre, the wealthy people, will seek your favor with gifts. In her chamber, the royal daughter is all glorious, her clothing embroidered with gold. In colorful garments, she is led to the king. After her, the virgins, her companions, are brought to you. They are led in with gladness and rejoicing. They enter the king's palace. Your sons will succeed your ancestors. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will cause your name to be remembered for all generations. Therefore, the peoples will praise you forever and ever. So, In the second part of the psalm, we see a time of instruction for this soon-to-be queen and a description of her beauty as she pre prepares to be wed to the king. The queen is already described as beautiful as she stands at the right hand of the king in verse 9. But now we see a beauty beyond looks, just like that of the king earlier in the psalm, that is tied to her character and how she treats the king. For this is not only her husband, but it is her lord, her king, as it says in verse 11. And as such, she is advised to listen, pay attention, and to consider the following. Forget your people and forget your father's house. Meaning, your affections and your allegiance are no longer with your family, but with your husband and king. And it is in this leaving of her old life and joining together with her husband, respecting him as king, that her beauty is fully seen by him. She is a match for him in regard to their beauty and their ideal character, as the psalmist described the king to be. And from here, the wedding is about to begin. As the bride is described as wearing beautiful clothing, and her virgin companions, think of them as her bridesmaids, follow her in rejoicing and gladness for the joyous wedding of these two magnificent people. And as the psalm comes to an end, the psalmist says he will cause the royal's family name to be remembered forever through their sons, which is another allusion to God's promise to David and his descendants that his throne and kingdom will last forever. The magnificent wedding of these two that is filled with gladness and rejoicing is the turn that we see after the pain and loneliness felt in Psalms 42 through 44. The hopeful joy is found in a king who is righteous and conquers his enemies and will have his name remembered forever as he carries on his legacy with his new wife and queen. So where does that leave us here today on this Sunday morning? We're already clued into who this king is and the husband, right? It's ultimately Jesus. But is there any significance to this queen? The answer is yes. Although there are no New Testament passages that quote Psalm 45 regarding the queen, that is not to say that there is no language of a bride of Christ in the New Testament. Paul uses the language of marriage more than once to describe the relationship between Jesus and his church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul states, 
He's talking to the Corinthians. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I have promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. Paul is using this metaphor analogy of marriage to speak of Jesus and his church. And in Ephesians 5, through 33, it's this whole passage where Paul is speaking of wives and husbands and almost in every verse, Paul is connecting it in some way to Jesus and his church. And this isn't some weird connection about Jesus being our husband and us being like his one collective wife kind of thing. But it's one that emphasizes the inseparable union and the commitment of Christ to his church from now into eternity. And it actually stems back from the Old Testament and how God referred to himself in Israel as husband and wife. And that there was this covenant commitment between the two of them. So we see Paul making these kinds of connections with Jesus and the church. But John in Revelation takes it one step closer to what we see in Psalm 45. In both the description of the bride and the groom and king. So turn with me to Revelation 19. Last book of the Bible, almost very last chapter. Revelation chapter 19. to look at verses 6 through 9. John writes, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. Here we see the marriage of the Lamb, referring to Jesus and his bride who has prepared herself with fine linen to wear, bright and pure. This fine linen is described as the righteous acts of the saints, implying that his bride is the church made up all of us as saints. And so the imagery in Psalm 45 and in Revelation 19 of a wedding with a bride and bridegroom and the fine linens to be worn all point to us as the church being the bride of Christ. So with these connections being made, I think that as we read what Psalm 45 says to the queen, that we as followers of Christ are to remember that we are his bride and we are to heed the advice given to the queen in Psalm 45. We ought to listen, pay attention, and consider the following that we must forget and leave behind our old way of life as the queen had to leave and forget her people and her father's house. And we must forget the affections of the things not focused on Christ so that we may truly bow down and worship him as he rightly deserves as our king. In following Christ, we consider all things rubbish, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. For here is the crux of it all. 
the king of kings who descended from David's line and whose throne lasts forever and who rules with a scepter of justice, all these amazing promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus. And it was Jesus as our righteous and mighty king that conquered our sin, our rebellion, and our straying from God in his death for us and in his rising to new life. So that we may be declared righteous, we may be pure, we may be adorned with beautiful garments and invited to be his bride, united with him securely for eternity. The hope of this psalm is not just some happy wedding for a king and a queen. It is the pointing forward to the eternal joy, the rejoicing and celebration we will have with God for eternity because he has washed our sins away, making us white as snow, like a beautiful bride on her wedding day. And if you have not forsaken everything, if you do not have faith in Christ, I urge you to do so today. There is no greater hope, there is no greater joy than what can be found in Christ himself. For we will have the greatest wedding feast ever when we are united with him for eternity. So what is our hope and takeaway from the sermon today? We have a king, and not just any king. We have a king who is filled with grace, who is true, humble, righteous, and just. And although we go through seasons of Psalms 42 through 44, where God just seems to be absent, Psalm 45 reminds us of the rejoicing and hope we have because Christ has come, the king is here, and we are his bride, the church. And he will have a glorious wedding feast prepared for us when we are united with him for eternity, in which we celebrate that Satan's sin and death are gone, defeated, done. And we rejoice with our mighty king, our loving savior, Jesus. Let's stand together and pray. Father, before anything was ever created, you had a plan. And it was a marvelous, mind-bending, unfathomable plan. You would be our king. You would rescue us. You would conquer Satan's sin and death on our behalf. And we did nothing to deserve it or earn it, Lord. But because of your faithful love, you took care of it. And it has brought you glory in every way. Father, as we looked at Psalm 45 this morning and this love song of a king and a queen coming to be married, Father, I pray that it reminds us of who we are, that you are our king and that you are the groom who has committed to us forever. You will never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. Our only hope is found in you. You are our mighty Savior and King. So Lord, I pray that as we go from here, we remember those things, we hold to those things, that when we get back into the reality of the world and there's times where it feels like you're absent, you're gone, you're not there, 
we remember that you are ruling and reigning as king. And that we have a hope that will never be taken away because it is, it is found in you. And that hope will come to fulfillment one day when we are with you for eternity. And we will rejoice with you forever at the greatest wedding banquet of all time. So Father, I pray we, we hold to these things, we cling to these things, and we are joyous to tell others about these things. Because Lord, it's not just good news for us, it's good news for the world. Lord, give us opportunities to speak of the amazing love that you have for us, of the great king that you are for the world that needs you. And may we do it all for your glory. I pray in your name. Amen.